Disability Law Show. We are back. You are back. Hang in for the hour. You're going to learn lots and lots of time to uh, write down the following numbers and email to reach out to Tamar and her team to get more information. Always tell you to do that, right? Help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number, 1-855-821-5900. That's to reach tomorrow after the show and uh, have your own chat on your own time if that's what you're looking to do. But we got lots to cover today as far as questions and emails uh, tomorrow. But we always start off with, uh, you know, case of the day or a week that was, pal. What do you got going on? Well, as I'm encouraged to do by my husband, I read the news. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I read, I came across an article, an interesting one, John, that was focusing on chronic mental health stress and how uh, certain entities have been resisting this kind of claim as a quote unquote valid disability claim. So I wanted to shed some light on this concept. Um, the article was focusing on workers' compensation claims. That's not something that we delve into. It's, it's peripherally related, but the principles un that underpin it are really important, which is it is an insurer and it's an insurer like the insurers we work with day in and day out who routinely will resist these kinds of claims. And the underpinnings are really an individual who is in a work setting that has been exposed to issues like harassment and bullying for a fairly long period of time then then develops, you know, a chronic mental health condition over time. So it's not like it happens an overnight thing. And it's very different than the kinds of physical disabilities that may put you, you know, disabled, you're fine to work one day and then disabled the next moment. And so what's happening with this increasing resistance by these insurers disproportionately, by the way, to approving these kinds of disability claims when clearly they are absolutely valid and are preventing individuals from working. And, you know, there's a lot of theories around it. I think that the main highlight is the fact that there appears to be more restrictions, overly critical ways that insurers are looking at the qualifications for disabilities that stem from mental health conditions and therefore resisting actually paying them. So quite simply, we're just seeing a much higher number of mental health conditions that are not being accepted for disability, whether it be workers' compensation, short-term or long-term disability, especially when it comes or stems from the workplace. So we talk about this a little bit on some of our shows and you get a lot of disability insurers writing letters to claimants saying, look, you know, this is all workplace related and we as disability insurers, we're not going to get involved in a crappy work situation. You should be taking up these issues with HR. But chronic mental health conditions, ones that persist over time and can really build and build to get an individual to a point where they have to stop working, I think are actually quite different than what the disability insurers would like to suggest, which is that it just because it stems from the work setting and you've managed to continue to work under that environment for a period of time doesn't mean it doesn't get to a point where you can't. And when your doctors or treatment providers or support people, anyone in your world is saying, look, enough's enough. You need to stop working. You need to focus on your health. Then theoretically, that's what these benefits are there for. Whether it's long-term disability, short-term workers' compensation, it doesn't much matter. So why is it that there's a stricter legal test? There shouldn't yeah. be. The tests are the same, right, John? I mean, the tests in the disability policy certainly are, are you totally disabled as a result of an illness or sickness from the essential duties of your occupation? 
out of the gates, that's the test. We talk about that all the time. It's the own occupation test. So why is the entitlement to employees being resisted by these disability insurers? Why are they treating mental health disabilities so differently than physical injuries? This is discriminatory. I think there's an inherently discriminatory element to this. And I think part of that is this idea or concern that it's going to open the floodgates, right? And, and insurers, the only way they're making profits is if they are not paying out claims. And so if they can find sort of a broad brush policy or some kind of guideline that they're telling their adjusters, hey, if you see mental health tied to the workplace, you deny, stamp that denial. And hopefully the individual will just simply buck up and get back to work or try and figure something out in the work setting or not work at all. And that was the other element of this, that this article was featuring was that people get to a point where they cannot go back to their work setting, that their health is pre preventing them from working. And they are looking for these income sources, rightly so, that they are entitled to, that now these insurers are denying. So I think really the conclusion here is that I really don't want to see people in situations like this give up their rights. I really would like to advocate. So does everyone on my team. If this is sounding familiar, please don't hesitate to contact us. We'll talk a little bit more throughout the show about where you can find some resources. But this connection between mental stress, whether it be from harassment or bullying in the work setting, and then ultimately leading you to stop working, if that is being supported by your doctors, you are absolutely entitled to these benefit sources and you should pursue them to the ends of the earth, John. I really want people to know that this is why we are here because we can support people to do this and do it successfully so that we eliminate this inherent discrimination that seems to be in there in this, in this setting of, in, of insurers and adjusters when they're looking at mental health disability claims. You think part of that discrimination factored in is the old thing we talk about, a lot of mental health conditions don't show up on a CT scan or an X-ray or an MRI. Therefore, I don't know if you're actually telling me the truth because I can't see paper evidence or a, a picture of your particular disability. Does that factor into it still? I think so, but I think that is the core problem with it, right? That uh, part of it and the part that I think generally people want to continue working. They don't want to necessarily throw in the towel. I think the vast majority I speak with, this is not a cakewalk for them. They're not looking for a handout by any means whatsoever. They're dedicated to their job and their work setting. But if it gets them to a point where they can no longer work, then they have to go down the path of trying to seek treatment and trying to get these income supports. And so to your point, think of what would normally happen in a situation like that. Maybe you go to see your family doctor. Maybe you see your family doctor every couple of months. Maybe that's mm -hmm. been going on for a number of years. And then your family doctor who's been treating you for this time frame sees you declining further and further and further. And so at some point your, your doctor's going to say, Hey, enough's enough and you need to stop working. But it's not like it's happened one day to the next. It's not like right. it's something that's occurred. You know, it's, it's something that's occurred over time. And so when the documentation is available for the doctor to complete, and put that over the disability insurer, what do you think they're going to put in there? They're going to say, yeah, symptoms have been going on for a number of years. You know, we've tried perhaps medication or short-term counseling efforts and so on, but I am, you know, supporting that this individual can no longer work. 
but what are the underpinnings of that as well? Is there an x-ray report? There isn't. There's probably just an assessment of a doctor who's been treating you who can see that this is not a good situation and you need to stop working. So this is why I don't love the forms, John. The forms don't yeah. allow the doctors to really expand upon what they have observed and what they've seen. I would much prefer to see narrative reports, something that's included with the clinical notes and records that support that just because this has been going on for a long time doesn't mean it's not chronic, valid, resistant to treatment, and preventing this person from working. That should equal to the disability benefits. The great start, fantastic start. Everybody should be taking note of this if it uh, if it's needed in the future for sure. But if you want to continue that conversation about this or anything else we talk about on the show, I want to remind you, you can always call Tamar and her team uh, anytime because quite often these matters are something you want to discuss at length uh, on your own time and in private. For sure, you can do that. one 821 5900 Email, which we're going to right after the break, is help at disabilityrights.ca or simply the website. Shorten that up to disabilityrights.ca. And we'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on for a moment. You bet. This is the Disability Law Show. Love having you for the show. And you always uh, make great contributions. Uh, your emails might get on air sometime. There's also the uh, website called mydisabilityquestions.com. We go to that quite often on the show and read some of those at mydisabilityquestions.com. But that email, help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number to reach Tamar and her team at the firm, always ready to help have that conversation. Won't cost you anything to pick up a phone, right? one 821 5900 All right, Tamar, Keisha is first up. Says, guys, my husband is on long-term disability for mental health, and we've been invited to a wedding. He rarely goes out, and I would like for the two of us to attend, but he does not really want to go and is worried that this could affect his LTD. Should he let the insurer know? Is it okay to attend a special event? Well, Really good email, Keisha. And so this really ties into what I was saying at the top of the show about mental health disabilities, eh, John? I mean, why just because you have a totally. mental health disability, right, do you feel that you can't leave your house? You know, that, that, that doesn't work together. Not at all, in fact. And I think that if it will benefit Keisha's husband to go out and actually do something and be in a public setting or, or something that's celebratory, then by all means, there should not be this hesitation that just because you're getting LTD benefits for your mental health, it means that you must be a shut-in. Um, that, that's not, those two things don't go together, okay? And so I, but I understand the concern because the concern is all of the things that we talk about with these insurance companies and these adjusters and what they do. And they, they will probe all your activities. So they've probably had a number of conversations with Keisha's husband about what he does day to day. They have probably asked him how much treatment he's getting, what medications he's taking, you know, what, you know, is he walking the dog? Is he helping Keisha with the groceries? Like all of those things become scrutinized because adjusters are very focused on function. So the whole approach that they take when they're looking at these disability claims is, can someone have sufficient function, even with their disability, to allow them to work, basically, okay? And what they will do is they will make assumptions on the function. So the concern, of course, that Keisha has, rightly so, is, look, if they find out that my husband went to this wedding, are they going to assume that he's fine and he can work tomorrow? I have seen leaps like that being done by insurance adjusters, but it doesn't make any sense. And yeah. I think the core, really, the way to protect yourself from these kinds of assumptions that are absolutely improper are to ensure that the treatment providers are endorsing some level of activity. 
So I recall working with a couple of clients who were doing treatments that required them to have exposure therapy. Okay, John, and this is a type of therapy where individuals are encouraged to actually engage with the public, to leave their homes, to do certain things, perhaps volunteer work or, you know, drive their kids to school or something like that. And in the context of that, it was absolutely required for the individual to not only be on disability, of course, but to push themselves to do these kinds of things in order to help them recover. So it was part of the recovery process. So I'd want to see that Keisha has the endorsement from her husband's treatment providers in order to attend this kind of a function. But whether or not there's a positive obligation to tell your adjuster that this function was attended to, I mean, I don't know about that, John. Sometimes I think that, you know, yes, people should have an open and honest dialogue with their adjuster, but, it, you know, do they have to take that additional step to say, hey, by the way, and tomorrow I'm going to a wedding, right? I don't know. I mean, I think if it comes up in the medical reports, I think if it comes up, you know, as a conversation with the adjuster about the level of function, I wouldn't see any downside in advising the adjuster, but it's not like you need their permission, right? That's, right. I think that's what I'm concerned about with Keisha is that, right, you don't need the permission from the adjuster. You don't even need the permission from a disability lawyer. What you need to have is a good discussion with your own treatment providers about whether or not this is medically okay to do. Is it recommended or contraindicated? Something that's going to hurt or harm or trigger something and set me back. And if that's the recommendation, then no but it's following medical advice more so than being concerned about the big bad insurance company and what you know assumptions they might make. But they do make these assumptions. And I absolutely sympathize with Keisha's situation. She wants to go to the wedding. She wants her husband to come. All good things. And they should absolutely engage in that if they've gotten the green light from his own doctors. Yeah, and I mean, if the doctor says, you know what, actually, that's that's a good thing. It's a, it's a one day out. It's a baby step, and you know, depending on his situation, this could be really good for your, your your treatment going forward. I encourage you to go to that wedding. Take it easy on the drinks, but you know, go to the wedding and have a good time. She's got ammunition if it ever comes back to her from the insurance company. Say, hey, hey, wait a minute here. You're off from mental health. You go to a wedding to have fun. Why did you do that? Well. Allow me to show you Exhibit A over here from my doctor who said it was actually good for my therapy. So I don't think it's a, there's no losing angle to reaching out to your medical team ahead of time. Good call. Exactly. And I think that it's similar to recommendations that you see, even for physical disabilities around, look, you should be exercising or perhaps going for walks or, you know, going for a bike ride or perhaps going to the gym. Swim or something. You know, swimming, exactly, John. And so there are treatment measures that are in place that are responsive to these types of disabilities that don't necessarily disentitle you to disability, right? It doesn't mean that you're not still allowed to get LTD benefits just because you're trying to make efforts to recover. And that's what these adjusters are losing sight of, is that they're, oh, they're real quick to tell claimants, hey, you're not getting appropriate treatment. We don't think there's objective medical. We don't, I've seen all of the excuses, right? Everything under the sun of why mm-hmm. they shouldn't pay a claim. But on the other hand, I think they don't give enough credit to these claimants to actually be focused on trying to get better and accepting these other alternative treatment measures other than just seeing the doctor. Because yes, that is absolutely an important aspect of it. But if the doctor, psychologist, counselor, physiotherapist are recommending certain activities that are in line with the disability that will move the needle and allow these people to improve and get back to work, then why shouldn't they be doing it? And I just don't want to see people in Keisha's situation be discouraged by that progress or by that engagement 
just because they're worried that the LTD benefit will be cut off unfairly. I would much prefer to see people focusing on their recovery and following that medical advice and hope that the LTD insurer will continue to pay that benefit until, you know, the husband is hopefully ready to return back to work or some kind of work setting. You know, I mentioned mydisabilityquestions.com a moment ago. A good question comes in, a common one too. So I want to get this out there that we get all the time. So, you know, tomorrow, what's the difference between the own and any occupation definition of policy? Because it comes up every show. We always refer to it, right? It does. Uh, you know, John, we had a, a great batch of uh, students start at our firm a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we hire articling students and summer students at our firm. And myself and uh, my colleague Albert did a disability 101 kind of seminar for these students. And this was one of the key features. They said, if you take away anything, students, about disability law, you need to understand what is the own occupation and the any occupation. So what is it? Well, I've been referencing the own occupation. The, the own occupation is usually the test or eligibility that you need to meet in order to get LTD benefits out of the gates. So when you apply for a long-term disability, and even short-term, frankly, is the same test, it really is whether or not your health is preventing you from doing the job that you were doing at the time that you stopped working. And they will look at the essential duties of your job. Typically, they'll look for a job description. All of those things will be looked at by the adjuster. Sometimes they get that information from you, sometimes from your employer, hopefully both. And they will line that up with your medical information to determine whether or not you, in fact, meet that test of disability, that own occupation test for disability. But in their wisdom, as insurers do, they have embedded a second test. So after a little while, usually two years or 24 months of payments, the test to continue to get your LTD benefit changes in the vast majority of disability policies. And, and they've dropped these policies, right, John? So they're doing this with intention, and they, they have intentionally set another test that arguably is a lot tougher to meet that says, can you do then any occupation, anything in the world for which you've got the minimum education, training, and experience, the requirements that you need to do another job, but another job that would pay you what's called a commensurate wage, so no longer is the insurance company looking to see if you can go back to the job you were doing at the earnings that you were making before you were unable to continue working. Now they're looking to see, can you make eh, three, two thirds, maybe something around the LTD benefit? And if so, then we do not need to continue paying you LTD benefits past that two year mark. And so the earnings threshold is lower and the test is higher, right? So they've made it very, very difficult. And this is oftentimes where we see people getting cut off with their benefits and coming to us and saying, hey, what can we do? And this is the conversation that we have is, look, what is the medical support, not only of your health issues, preventing you from working at your own occupation, but also your any occupation. And with that, we will take a short pause and get back in another one of your emails. If you want to bring them along, send them along. It is uh, help at disabilityrights.ca. Or if you want to bypass that, go right to the phone number to call tomorrow and your team after the show. one 821 5900 is how you do that. We'll continue. This is a Disability Law Show. Hang in there. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Tamara Gopian is a lawyer you want to reach out to. She's got a great team behind her, handpicked. They are awesome, and they're always ready to talk to you and have that conversation. You want to do it on the phone, uh, 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That is your email address. Keep that with you. 
We'll get to Fanny up next. Says, hey, tomorrow I'm currently on LTD through my work insurance uh, company. I've been on LTD for a couple of years now due to a chronic illness, and I may never able be able to go back to work. My insurance company is saying that I have to apply for CPP disability, and I don't understand why or what the ramifications, et cetera, are of doing that. They're at the point of telling me that if they don't get the paper soon, they will uh, assume that I have applied for CPP disability and I'm receiving the maximum amount, and then they will start deducting that from my checks. I really need some reliable professional advice and clarification ASAP on this matter before I move forward, as my insurance company is directing me to do. All right. Really good email, Fanny. Uh, really good email because, of course, you feel as though the, the language of the policy is stacked against you, right, John? This is what I was getting at even talking about the own occupation and any yes. occupation tests in our prior segment is that people don't understand why is it that the insurance company is telling me I've got to go and apply for this government program. And it's because they draft these policies to make sure that Everything is sort of calibrated, um, made so that they can then make more money, right? So here is how CPP disability works, Fanny. If you are approved, you're going to get less money from the insurance company. That, that's, that's what it is, okay? And so that's why they are pressuring you to say, hey, you know, you got to apply. And if you don't apply, we can estimate this amount that you're going to get from the government, maybe, maybe, and take that off your LTD benefit. So really simple example, John. If Fanny's getting $3,000 a month, she may be entitled to about 1000 from the government for a CPP disability benefit, and if so, insurance company pays 2000 okay? The thing is, the test for CPP disability is different. It's different than what you see in your disability policy. And the test is, if you have a severe and prolonged disability, then you may be entitled to this disability benefit, which incidentally does pay on average about $1,000 a month. I think with Fanny's profile, from what she's described anyway in this email, she's saying she's got a chronic illness. And by virtue of the fact that she's been on claim for a couple of years now, suggests to me that maybe she's already gone over that hurdle of the two-year mark that I was talking about. And now the insurer has potentially accepted, at least for now, that she's totally disabled from doing any occupation. And so it's not surprising that if that's the analysis they've done, that they are going to be looking to get some credits because they know Fanny's going to be on claim with them for a while. Okay, So it's it's insurers who do this, and I've seen some do it better than others. They will send this standard letter with a package saying, hey, you should be applying for LTD. Some will actually even tell people, John, that they must apply. And I have yet to see a single policy that says you are required to apply. You're not required. But I actually think, Fanny, that the good outweighs the bad here. Okay, Yes, the insurance company gets a credit, but I also think having the government acknowledge the severity and the prolonged nature of your disability is a good thing. It is really helpful leverage against the disability insurer if they happen to make the wrong decision down the road and cut you off. Because I think then you at least have not only the acknowledgement from the government of a severe and prolonged disability, but then you also have that thousand bucks a month or whatever it is that's still continuing while giving us an opportunity to challenge the disability insurer for having potentially made the wrong decision and cutting her off. So I routinely will recommend to people, do make that application. Yes, it may mean you're getting a little less from the insurer and getting a little more from the government or what have you, but the good does outweigh the bad for these kinds of requirements. But I want to touch on one other thing, John, and that's this idea of 
well, if I don't apply, they're going to take an estimate and I don't understand how they can do that. Well, this I have seen in policies where insurers will say, yep, you know what, you are eligible for these benefits, CPP included, and if you are, then we can take an estimate for the amount if we think you should be getting it, whether you're getting it or not. Now, I often don't see the estimate being applied at the stage where people are still on claim. I'd be surprised. I mean, I've seen it a little bit, but not routinely. They are usually using it as a pressure tactic to make sure that that application is made because really it's the doctor who's, who's endorsing that there is this um, severe and prolonged disability. So if the insurer goes ahead and takes the estimate, well, then why wouldn't you want to actually make that application? And how about you make the application and I recommend you call Service Canada and say, hey, what would be the amount that I would be approved for while you guys are taking, you know, the four to six months that it takes to review my application? Because then you can provide that information to your adjuster and say, you can't take the maximum. Service Canada told me I'm only going to get 1200 bucks a month, right? Or whatever the, the benefit is or $800 a month. So I think there are things here in Fanny's situation that are favorable, but it is important that she understands her rights around this so that she too will protect herself from a very aggressive adjuster or insurer trying to take the maximum amount against her disability benefit when she has yet to even apply and we still don't know if she has is going to be approved. So I would try and resist the adjuster's um, efforts in doing that only because you also want to make sure that you're getting every last dollar from the LTD insurer that you can while you are still on claim and approved um, so that you've got that financial support to rely upon as you continue down the path of potentially uh, focusing on your health and your recovery. Fanny, fantastic email. Appreciate it. You can reach out if you need uh, more information. Pretty uh, pretty in-depth answer there, but if you need it, tomorrow's always ready with her team as well, one 821 5,900. Let me ask you again, these, these questions we're getting today are fantastic. And if you want to read some of these, in fact, if you want short, quick, concise notations about the topics of LTD we talk about every week, uh, not legally, it's really simple to use. It's ltdfaq.ca, ltdfaq.ca. You can use that. Another question we got tomorrow is, you know, if the insurance company denies my claim, all right, what's the difference between the timeline to appeal and the limitation period? What's the difference? Good question. Okay. Where do I start? Do I start with the appeal or the limitation period? Let's start with the limitation oh, period, the, John. Yeah, okay, yeah. All right. <laughs> the we appeal, love appeals. The appeal. Um, so limitation period. In Ontario and in most, I mean, we practice across the country. So in most of the provinces across the country, there is a outside time frame in which you can start a legal claim to sue another party for what you think you are owed, okay? And that's generally two years. And that's in LTD, that's usually two years from the moment that you receive the denial letter or a call from the insurance company saying we're denying your claim or cutting off your claim. That is the limitation period. It does seem like it might be a long time, but I can assure you it is not a very long time, especially if you decide to go down the path of appealing. This is why I started with limitation period, John, because it leads me to talking about the appeal process. So two years from the moment that you're denied from the insurance company, you've got to start that legal claim. If you do not, the court will shut the door and say, we're not even looking at your disability claim because you did not bring the claim in time. This is why you want to get timely legal advice if you're having any issues with your disability insurer, even if they haven't cut you off yet, by the way, please don't hesitate to contact us. So what does that do then to the timeline to appeal? The appeal process is a process that's been conceived of by the insurance companies. This is not something that's in your policy. 
So it is, there are no time requirements actually in any disability policy that I've seen that says the claimant has to appeal in 30 days. Then the insurance company has to respond to the appeal in 30 days. Then there has to be an outside decision in 60 days. Those, none of that is transparent. Every insurer has a different time frame involved and they are not always very clear at all actually to a claimant as to when the insurance company is supposed to respond. You'll get a denial letter, John, and the denial letter will only say that you must appeal within this time frame. Okay, so from a time frame perspective, it's not tied to anything. Whereas the limitation period is tied to law. There's actual legislation out there that prescribes and says you must do this within this period of time. That is one of the main reasons why I get extremely frustrated by the appeal process because it does not put the feet to the fire of the insurance company. They have no mutual obligation to someone who is saying, pretty, pretty, please, can you just look at this one more time adjuster? Even though I know you said no to me once, twice, three times over, but you know, just look at it one more time and I'm sure you'll be persuaded that I am entitled to disability benefits. That is not a problem that we face with legal claims. In fact, the law also assists us in forcing the insurance company to respond and to come to the table to talk about resolving the claim. And sometimes that happens even sooner than the two or three or four appeals that people have been going down the path of doing with the insurance company. So really important to understand that those timelines are arbitrary as it relates to the insurance company and are meant really intended by the insurance company to run down the clock for you to actually start that legal claim. So I encourage people not to fall into that trap to please, please consider at least a consultation with a disability lawyer, myself, someone on my team, not a problem, completely free, or at least access what John was mentioning, which is the ltdfaq.ca, really helpful memos in there on how to navigate all of this. But you want to make sure that you're doing it relatively quickly so that you do not miss out on that two-year window to start that legal claim. Short break right here. Fred, we'll get to your email next. Thanks for sending it along ahead of time. You can do it anytime as well, not just for the show, but beyond that, they will get answered and replied to from tomorrow's team. Help at disabilityrights.ca. I'll give you the phone number, 1-855-821-5900. Short break, then we'll come right back with more of the Disability Law Show. All right, welcome back. Disability Law Show, a few minutes to go. If your email does not appear in this particular show, it may come up in a future show. Always send them along. Keep them coming. They'll get answered regardless. So how about that? It's help at my, or pardon me, help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number 1-855-821-5900. Tomorrow and our team are always available for a chat and to provide you with some answers in this crazy world of disability law. So don't hesitate to uh, to reach out. Fred, as promised, your email is coming up now, pal. It says, guys, I'm uh, currently six years old and I'm on LTD. I have one year left before the change of definition. I was an employee for six years before tearing my rotator cuff. Now my insurance would like me uh, to pay me uh, to pay me to get me off my claim. They're suggesting pay me out half the value of the remaining five years to age sixty-five. Uh, is there a rule of thumb for insurance pay uh, insurance payouts, or are they all specific and individual? Also, did the government change retirement age from sixty-five to sixty-seven? Thank you. <laughs> okay, Thanks, there Fred. You go. Yeah. Yep. So look, um, a lot of things to unpack here, actually, John. Uh, so number one, no, the retirement age was not changed from 65 to 67, at least That's not France. as far as I know. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, France uh, had a big debate about their uh, change yeah. of retirement age, but no, 
as far as I know, nothing has changed in Canada uh, as it relates to disability benefits or any government entitlements, right? So CPP disability or straight CPP. I think you can access some of those uh, a little earlier at age 60, but it's not like they've extended the period of time. And so similarly, Fred should know, long-term disability benefits usually end when he turns 65 as well. So what he's describing to us is the insurance company having come to him and said, look, you may be on claim for the next five years, and we're going to give you half of that value as a lump sum settlement. And in exchange for that, Fred will have to give up the balance of his policy and say, and benefits and say, okay, I'm releasing the insurance company to get half of the payments paid up front. Look, insurance companies do this on occasion, John. Uh, there's two insurers that come to mind who do this quite routinely. And they make it seem like as if they're doing this as part of the regular systems of adjudicating claims but they don't do it with every claim. So I know that they are looking at claims in particular and eyeballing them in certain ways, putting them into certain metrics. And I've got to suspect that they've looked at Fred's claim and thought to themselves, hey, he's you know got a physical disability. He's already been off for a year. He's going to get older with time. That's not necessarily going to help the rotator cuff issue. I'm not really sure what he was doing before he went on disability, but certainly he'd been working fairly consistently for a while. And the fact that he may potentially only have five years left on the policy tells me that the insurer maybe doesn't want to have him on and maybe they don't want to have to deal with the change of definition. So what is that? That's something we talked about earlier in the show where the definition to continue to get disability benefits changes after two years and it becomes arguably tougher to meet. And usually around that time, the insurance company has to do a heck of a lot of adjusting and adjudicating and different things to justify closing out these claims. And perhaps they don't want to make those efforts or spend the money in doing that. They'll try and pay Fred off. So he asks us, is this specific? Is it an individual issue? Is there a rule of thumb? I would say there's a yes and no answer to that, Fred, unfortunately. But I don't know if it much matters. I think it only matters whether it makes sense for Fred. John, I'm not even worried about what the insurance company is doing with other claimants. I want Fred to make this assessment for himself. If he expects and his doctors expect that he is not going to be able to return to work in any meaningful way before that retirement age at age 65, then I got to think he's leaving money on the table. And I don't like the idea of the insurance company trying to buy him off ahead of time. And a lot of the time they are trying to save dollars. So maybe they've looked at it on their end thinking, well, we're not going to have a good reason to cut him off. We're probably going to get him on until 65. Maybe we can dangle this carrot with some money up front that looks really big and looks like a big number up front. And we can maybe get him to agree to take it. But in exchange for that, he's going to be giving up the balance of the payments that he's potentially owed. So, Could it be that in other circumstances, I've sort of seen this 50-50 scenario? Yes, John, I have these discussions with insurers all the time, but in the context of a legal claim where there are lots of different factors at play, I think for Fred, when you're being approached by your insurance company to look at and consider a lump sum settlement, I don't like the idea of him, first of all, not having a consultation, and I don't like the idea of him not clearly understanding what this would mean in terms of giving up other payments. But it is very individual in the sense that a lot of it will depend on where Fred is at from a health perspective. 
if the likelihood for a return doesn't make sense, then I don't like the idea of these lump, lump sum settlements because it's basically the insurance company trying to buy you off for, you know, 50 cents on the dollar, so to speak, in order for you to give up the balance of the payments that you may be entitled to. Let's flip this around because that's the obvious question. What if it's like, okay, tomorrow, what if it sounds good to me? What if I approach the insurance company with some sort of deal similar to this? What are the pitfalls? Eh, this is one where you're going to put something on the radar of the adjuster, right? This is a red flag, I feel like. If Fred were to go to the adjuster and say, hey, by the way, you want to buy me off? I'm, I'm ready to make a deal, right? And the adjuster is going to say, why? Why? Are you ready to go back to work? Are you going to do a side job? Are you going to be doing something under the table and pretending that you're still disabled with us? Like, it's so cynical, John. Adjusters are very cynical, actually. And so I would hate the idea of Fred bringing this to light to hit the adjuster or the insurer and unnecessarily putting a focus on where he's at from a health perspective, especially when he's actually still a year away from the change of definition. That's important, too. In my mind, given his health issues, you know, it's likely that he should be entitled to at least another year of benefits. And so what more is he getting beyond that change of definition? Not a whole heck of a lot on this offer. Yeah. And if he were to approach the adjuster, I think it would just be unnecessary scrutiny on his claim and his status and where he's at and get the backup of the insurance company when the, I know they already look at it very cynically, but why bring unnecessarily um, any sort of negative light to your situation and your disability? You want the focus really to be on your health and your ongoing entitlement to that benefit. Let me skip down to uh, to Terry's email here where we still got uh, a few minutes to go. It says, guys, I'm on disability. I would like to try to return to work. I'm not sure if I can work in construction because of my knee injury. Can my physician write that I am well enough to try working, but unsure if my knee will allow me to return to work, uh, pre-injury work? What do you think, Tamar? Yeah, complicated a little bit, Terry, because this is the gray area that I talk about. And the gray area, look, I mean, we're experts at it, right? This touches on some employment elements and some disability elements. These are the two main practice areas that are firm and, and we're great at it. I think, though, with Terry, I don't want to suggest to him what he's capable of doing. It is a medical question, truly, yeah. and one that his he and his physician should have a real conversation about. Because clients come to us all the time, John, and they say, look, I think I'm ready to return to work. What do you think, Tamar? You know, I've got this legal claim. I've got you involved. You know, what do I do in a situation like this? And I always say to them, you know, it's not a legal question. It's a medical one. So if your doctor thinks that there is a reasonable likelihood for you to be successful in returning back to work, then I have absolutely no hesitation in endorsing that and saying, great, make that attempt but make it if it's going to be one that will stick, so to speak. Because the last thing I want to see happen for Terry is that the LTD benefits end because he's returned back to work. But if it's not sustainable, if he's not able to be successful with it and tries to get back on claim with the insurance company, the insurance company is going to try and resist that claim. They're happy to get Terry off claim and get him back into the work setting. And they're going to be resisting his ability to get back on that, not on that disability policy. So, in a situation like this, you've got to be careful, get some clear medical information, and then Terry can work directly with his employer to see whether or not there's an accommodation that needs to be put in place or what has to be put in place with his job to ensure that his return is successful. That is also a process with the employer, and the employer has that duty to accommodate. 
feel free to listen to any of our employment law shows as well if you're interested to hear a little bit more about that. But from a disability context, Terry is potentially on a path for a return, which is very positive, but one which can be challenging to navigate when you've got this partial disability capacity. The insurer may still be obligated to pay some benefits and your employer is obligated to try and accommodate this partial work. Very tricky stuff, Terry, but one that starts with getting very clear medical information on where you're at and what the proposed path is medically for you to return back to work. Thank you, Terry. That'll wrap it up for us. Good stuff today. Reaching out to you tomorrow now that we are done. You can always do so. Encouraged to do so. That email address we always use, help at disabilityrights.ca. You have mydisabilityquestions.com. Go to that website for free and anonymous questions that you can ask. And then the phone number, right? one 855 821 5900. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.